Well, hello and welcome to episode 148 of the 1099 for the week of May 14th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the creative director at Outpost Games, the former creative director for Tomb Raider at Crystal Dynamics, creative director for Battlefield Hardline, former art director on Dead Space at Visceral, and game developer for more than 22 years, Ian Millam. Ian, when I read that all out loud, do you like forget some of the stuff that you did? Like, am I saying this? And like, oh man, I did make that game. It, it does. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, it does. <laughs> it, it does sound like a lot when you put it that way, for, for sure. And that was leaving stuff out, too, of course. Like, And of course, I want to go over a lot of the different projects you've been a part of because they're, they're beloved, they're successful, they're really memorable games but you have an illustration degree from Syracuse which makes sense when you consider all the artwork you've done since first getting into games but was being a part of game development the goal when you first went to college or was it more of this right place right time when you graduated uh it was more of the latter i was certainly a a, a video game fan uh and and but viewed them mostly as a hobby rather than a, a than a, a career because at that time, and we're t- so you know, my high school days overlap with sort of uh, Super Nintendo Genesis type of era, still still sprite based and and two D, and the art wasn't really it was obviously I I respect it a great deal, but it wasn't the kind of stuff that I that I was thinking about doing. I was more into animation, and that was also the explosion of of CG and movies. So I mm-hmm. thought that I would be sort of going in that direction. Um, I wanted to to draw to tell stories. I knew I didn't want to be a fine artist, so I thought I was going to be like either a book illustrator or um, into into like I said, CG for movies. But the right place, right time is when I the the I graduated from college right when the original PlayStation came out, oh, wow. and with CD storage instead of cartridge storage came a lot more capability to show uh, things, especially in that era, like Final Fantasy VII style background paintings and stuff. So that was my first gig was doing background paintings and, and things like that for an RPG. And uh, boy, here we are all these years later still in games. And <laughs> it, it, that turned out to be amazing timing. And uh, the the innovation and everything that's happened since then has been quite a ride. Did you have people who you knew, friends of yours maybe, who were in games and that kind of tipped you off to that being kind of this this fertile spot for work? Or like you said, you just saw the PlayStation 1 come out and the light bulb went off? Not too much. I mean, a little bit. Uh, I was, I had some geographical luck in that I was born and raised in Seattle and Microsoft being a part of that world to some degree was when I moved back to Seattle from, from college, uh, my first job was at Microsoft as part of their web TV project, doing sort of little graphics and cartoons and stuff for for them. And that turned out to be sort of games adjacent. But actually, I still thought I was going to go for the um, visual effects and and movies route. And the place that I got a job in in Seattle, a little tiny uh, place called Rain Sound, was started by XILM and Pixar people. And Mm. you got to remember, this is in the in the mid to late 90s when it was really hard to get the gear necessary to do computer graphics i mean you know you had photoshop and stuff and i was doing 3d but you know uh a seat of alias power animator was you know like 55 60 thousand dollars and and a box to 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 run it on you know you needed an sgi and stuff so 
I interned for free at a at a CG studio uh, and just didn't get access to the tools. And then what happened is when Square went, uh, they closed their Redmond office because they didn't need to ne- be next to Nintendo anymore because they were going to develop for the PlayStation instead of the N64. They closed down their studio in Redmond and a bunch of people stayed and needed a new, uh, formed a new studio and needed a new art department. And the the my mentor and the ex ILMer who was the head of the place that I was working at started that new art department, and I was her first hire. So there was a lot of serendipity in there. Yeah, serendipity seems to be the theme of a lot of people I've talked to, because of course there's there's the hard work and there's the passion to it. But I think anyone who has become successful in games cannot deny the luck factor in a lot of this. The right place, right time, right people, where you have to set yourself up to take advantage of those moments but those moments exist you can't just be the person who's like i worked hard and that's why it's like well other things happen too plenty of people work hard and aren't as lucky and uh, but i i do find the hard work is a requirement yes but that it's usually the not the whole recipe exactly there's a whole bunch of other ingredients and a lot of those are out of your hands in a lot of case uh, i was looking through your resume which was on your site and it looked like you went from microsoft to crave to lucas arts in this three-year span and those are all really big names but when did you personally feel i mean crave it microsoft and lucasarts are a little bigger than yeah it's a little bit of one of those it's not like the other situation (laughs) what happened is i was doing uh, it was one of the things that was lucky is that back then uh, an art team pretty much everybody did everything but uh while i loved japanese rpgs what i really loved were more like adventure games and and more western adventure games and November of 98, Grim Fandango came out. And it was the same idea, really, as Final Fantasy in terms of 3D characters that were walking around on on 2D backgrounds that had been sort of cut up and stuff. But I just fell madly in love with Grim Fandango. Mm. And I decided that, oh man, that's... I want to work with these types of people and I want to make these types of games... So, yeah, like six months later is when I moved down here to California and started my job at LucasArts. Now, of course, there's a case where my timing, you could call it fortunate, depending on what you're talking about, or unfortunate, because most everybody that I joined uh, LucasArts to work with then promptly left. Tim and everybody uh, who had just done Grim Fandango left to form Double Fine uh, like six months after I got there. And that's where, you know, the Jedi Knight team left to form Infinite Machine and uh, Nihilistic and everybody bugged off, which meant that I, I I didn't get a chance to make those amazing adventure games or work with those people as much as I wanted to. But it also meant that there were a lot of opportunities for advancement at LucasArts at, at that time. And and it was sort of a, hey, man, well, let's figure this out. So uh, it turned one one lack of opportunity turned into a different opportunity. And LucasArts is where I sort of got to really learn about art direction and, and team management and stuff. And beyond just learning about team management and art direction, even though those people who you knew and looked up to had left to do other things, did the LucasArts jobs feel a bit like this is your I made it moment? Or maybe to take that a step further, you got that job and you kind of thought in your head, okay, I can see this being my career and seeing myself be successful in it. Because again, you come out of college you have ideas of what you want to do, but there's a serendipity and games come along. Was this your first, this is my going to be my career moving forward moment? Uh, yeah, well, it was very, it was certainly very exciting times. 
And, you know, everybody everybody looks back at, at the prequel era of Star Wars movies maybe with uh, different lenses now than they did at the time or even the same ones they had at the time. But it definitely was a real time of innovation in in computer graphics in general and storytelling and stuff. And Lucas was a really unique and awesome environment being that it was privately owned all by George and uh, there was convergence starting to happen and all kinds of stuff. So being around LucasArts was incredible. Being around ILM artists was incredible. And um, like there were opportunities. Yes, we pretty much pivoted to working only on Star Wars games, but I got to be on set for the movies and learn about how those things were happening and uh, the previs phases and working, you know, a lot of art, some artists would work on both the movies and the games and doing all kinds of stuff. So exposure to a large group of very talented people who had worked really hard and were the best in the world at a lot of cases at what they did was hugely inspiring. And yes, really where sort of my fire was lit was during those five years that I was at LucasArts. What was it like doing art direction for Star Wars games? Because most people who like video games probably have a pretty deep appreciation for Star Wars. So that has to be exciting. But also there's this other aspect of, you know, Lucas is going to have some creative control on what you can do in art direction, how far you can take it, how many liberties you can take. So was that exciting for you being able to work on that franchise? Well, it was hugely exciting. And and actually one of like probably the headiest two months of my life was like everybody. So when episode one came out, I did not yet work there and I hadn't applied there. And uh, I was, you know, considering options and stuff like that. So I waited in line like everybody else and uh, for episode one and went to the, went to it in the movies. And two months later, I was working at LucasArts, watching episode one again in the private theater at Skywalker Ranch, sitting next to George Lucas. That's a jump. Yeah. And so that, you know, I had a moment of like, wow, okay, uh, it's on now. And uh, so that, yes, that was pretty amazing. And then, yeah, working on Star Wars, while of course an incredible opportunity, was hugely educational because it's really easy to do wrong. And a lot of learning about how what are the fundamental things that make something work and make something what it is the shape language color language whatever that isn't just imitating the end result or rehashing the end result or uh you know any of those types of things creating multiple star wars things working with the star wars art department working with all the different craftsmen in in various areas and learning from some of those incredibly talented people really set me up well to understand art direction at a at a sort of fundamental level and not just at a hey you know if you take a spaceship and make it used there you go <laughs> and so when it was later in time later in my career where you know you only have a white sheet of paper it it helped me understand that you need to uh, that you need to create and work on those underlying principles and languages that then later are the building blocks from which something gets assembled and if so, you don't fall victim to just imitating the final the final product, and and creating something too derivative. Because we've all seen, you know, Star Wars fan art or new things where you're like, yeah, that's not 
that's not really Star Wars. Yeah. Even though it's made of all the same parts or it looks the same, it's it's missing the underlying understanding of the influences and building blocks and core tenets of something. And uh, it's been it's been also interesting to see in this current era as Star Wars has exploded again, how that's been reinterpreted and, and grown. Was there this big dusty book of lore you had to read through to make sure you're like, hey, no yellow lightsabers. And if you're going to do this exact specific thing and you do it in this certain way, did you have to be kind of briefed on everything in that way? Uh, it Well, there wasn't any... You know that got reinvented all the time, yeah. and to be honest, there was always George there as a as a veto power. Where you know if he said it, it it went. Uh, but mostly, it was just talking with the people. I was fortunate during that era where some of the you know OGs were still around, and uh, you could have access in some cases to the actual um, props and things and all that kind of stuff. But no, it was mostly talking to the people involved and seeing the, the, the language as, I was, as it was being developed and figuring out because your job is to make new stuff that somehow feels of a piece with this yeah. old stuff. So you're constantly sort of experimenting and sharing with people and, and, and finding out for yourself. They, so there is no single Star Wars art Bible. There is a lot of um, uh, like story canon and all that kind of stuff, which has evolved. And, and everything like that. So that, yes, there are very definite rules about that kind of thing. But at that stage, I was mostly worried about what it looked like. Do you have a dream Star Wars game in your head with like whether you have unlimited budget, whatever genre you want? Is there something that you've thought of that you're like, man, I wish this could exist or I could make this? Oh, God. Well, um, you know, I don't know how unique this would be because uh, everybody, I think a lot of people would have that answer. We were actually working on one fairly recently that was pretty close to it Mm. um we were working on uh ragtag at at ea which was basically the scoundrel game i i still want to make and and would love to be a part of and want to see exist a proper open world space pirate scoundrel game where you are in backwater uh you know swarthy backwater dice games in in out in truck stops and all that kind of stuff and then find yourself swept up in the greatest events in the galaxy i've been more i've always been more attracted to the to the 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 space pirate scoundrel fantasy than the than the jedi fantasy so that's yeah. that's what i would like to see have happen that would be incredible um and this is another game you worked on that is also in space but maybe entirely different i People love Dead Space, and you spent nearly seven years uh, as the franchise art director for that series. People have exceptionally fond memories of those games. Did you know, I, I talked to a lot of developers who, when they're making a game that becomes a hit, they don't in the moment know how big that game's going to be. You're so head down making it. You, you think like, oh, this has a really good chance. We think there's great ideas here, but you don't really know until it's out. Did you have any inclination that Dead Space would be as big as it became when you were first working on the art direction for Dead Space 1? No, no concept. I mean, I was I was proud of it, but a week before it came out, we sort of asked around each other, and I think I said it was going to be an 83 on Metacritic, and I didn't know what it was going to sell. Now, to be honest, you know, people have a lot people might have some affection for it, but it wasn't very big when it came out. It had yeah. really good legs, and it was sort of a rediscovered gem maybe the next year or something like that. But when it came out, it came out in August of August. It came out of October of 2008, right around 
Gears 2, Modern Warfare, uh, like a bunch of stuff. Right, So no one bought it around there. And EA even thought that Mirror's Edge, was gonna, which came out three weeks later, was going to be a bigger deal. So Mirror's Edge got all of the advertising. And there was some good word of mouth and legs and a lot of discovery. Like when it was a little like next spring, like spring of 09, some people were like, oh, you know, like I, boy, I didn't really hear about this when it came out, but I went back around to that Dead Space. Boy, that was pretty good. And then, you know, by the time we made Dead Space 2, actually, Dead Space 2 came out, coming out um, retroactively boosted the sales of Dead Space 1 by quite a bit. Because oh, people wow. sort of went, oh, well, what's this? And and <laughs> over the years, it, it built some momentum. But it, it was a slow burn. And I, and I think people have a lot of affection for it. And it sold okay. But um, it was never like, oh, man, we created this, this pillar of a thing. The real story uh, uh, of Dead Space was actually way before it, it came out, where uh, like 15 of us, Glenn Schofield and, and Michael Contry, who later formed Sledgehammer Games and made those great Call of Duty games, uh, they sort of put their asses on the line to get the right to make their own IP oh. after years and years. But the other things, two of the things were happening in EA at the time. They told us, it was a big new IP push time. And they were like, hey, uh, we are, right now there are 11 new IPs being started in the EA family. Okay. And they thought that eh, maybe like three were going to come out. And then on top of it, the other games being made in the studio at the time were like Tiger Woods Golf, Lord of the Rings, The Simpsons, and The Godfather. Boy, what a different era. Yeah, no kidding. And so those are contractually obligated to come out. So like we're almost certainly getting canceled. We got a three out of 11 chance anyway. And then on top of it, our own studio has all these other things they're working on that even if we don't screw up, uh, they might just need our people if one of those other games screws up. So we knew from early on that that game needed to be like self-evident and feel like it was really on its way, even if we were just getting started, right? It needed to be uncancelably good and and feel like, oh, this is already playable. Like, we're almost done. You can't cancel this. So there was not a lot of documentation written and not a lot of, uh, like, we knew right away we had to have something. So we were built, we were iterating and building dirty and making stuff right from the ground. And we thought we were going to get canceled you know, months into it. So in retrospect, that was actually hugely beneficial and focusing yeah. because we didn't overscope because we knew we had to do it right then. And we were and we were finding out what we were making right out of the gate and iterating on it and showing it to people like we were putting it in executives and, and decision makers hands. Um, I think by the later part of 06. So, you know, eight months in. And, you know, the game didn't come out for two more years and uh, all that stuff. So it, we really poured ourselves into that early and we're working on it a lot. So I was fiercely proud of it, uh, but I don't know if I thought that it was going to be any kind of hit yeah. or anything like that. I was just hopeful. First, up until about six months before it came out, all I wanted was for it to come out because that wasn't clear. Uh, and then once it did come out, all I was hoping for would be that we got to do another one. And only really by Dead Space 2 did it start to... Only really when Dead Space 2, E3 2010, 
when we were showing Dead Space 2 for the first time, that's the first time where I felt like, oh, this this is actually kind of turning into something. That's cool. What a terrifying motivating factor of I don't know if this is going to be released, so we need to make sure this looks good so it does. Like that I'm guessing that's maybe more common than a lot of people know of, but hey, like if, if it worked, it worked. You mentioned before that competition was a big factor for the first one kind of being maybe a late bloomer in terms of sales. Do you think also a big part of that was in that moment, and even now too, it's just exceptionally difficult to introduce a new IP, let alone a new IP that's a horror game? Yeah. Uh, well, there's no question about that. It, it, I think it's actually much harder now because games have to be so much bigger and all things to all people because they're so expensive. Uh, but, you know, like the year around when Dead Space came out, I want to say, and don't hold me hard to these numbers, but it seems about right to me. The year that Dead Space came out, I think EA shipped like 65 games and now they'll ship like 10. Yeah. But they'll make more money because those 10 games are so much bigger. So it's a lot harder now. My actual, my worry when we were first developing Dead Space is that people wouldn't realize it was horror. And that since the horror was kind of a big, like the whole reason we were doing stuff, because our feeling was, oh, well, we like this. We think we can do this. Our talents line up with horror well. And compared to people liking horror games, they don't come out that often. So that was our niche. But I was really worried that people would see uh you know a spaceman with a laser gun <laughs> and think that we were making like a space marine gears of yeah space gears of war right and so that's why we indexed visually so hard on horror visuals and, and even at a fundamental level everything went through that lens from the color palette to the shape language to, to everything else and that was my big concern was uh yeah something that was ownable and distinctive but also even though it was mostly technology on a spaceship, felt like a, a horror game and not like a sci-fi shooter. You talk about games more and more being forced to be very broad, a little bit of everything for everyone because of the cost and because if EA is doing 10 of these, they need to make sure they are 10 either hits or at least decent selling kind of games. Did you feel that pressure between Dead Space 1, Dead Space 2, and even Dead Space 3 where you maybe had to not abandon the horror because all of those games are horror games, but lean more into the action side of it to make it a little bit more broad. I think the, the wave of that really started to build uh, around the late, uh, early, early this decade. So around 2011, 2012 and stuff. So between Dead Space 2 and 3. And uh, you can see that influence, obviously, on, on Dead Space 3. And then it's only gotten bigger since then. One to two, not really. Uh, one did for Dead Space Two. We really thought, hey, now that we know what we're doing, we think we can up the quality and uh, and make it. You know, we want to, but it, all we talked about was Metacritic and scoring high quality and doing all that kind of stuff, and and that was that was fine. But it was really between two and three where you started to see that budget explosion. You know, a generational leap was about to happen, and everything sort of you know going from there. And then the this the broadening and the influence of open world and everything else and 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 especially the fight against used games and everything like that. And then it's just only gotten more and more huge. Where I mean, holy crap! Look at Far Cry Five and and everything that it has in it, uh, and and how big AAA games are now. 
especially Ubisoft, where you have like an Assassin's Creed game where a thousand or more people have touched that game in some way, where all these different studios are collaborating together and it becomes this it's not just one team, it's multiple teams doing different things with it. So yeah, like the scale of that and the the ter- like the, the terrifying nature of actually failure in that way, I would assume is way bigger now. Uh, do you- Your studio closes. Oh, totally. Like that's what that comes down to. One one miss and you're and you're and you're done. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you're if you're a big time video game maker and you have a, a big AAA game that you're spending uh, $100 million to make, and some of them are even more than that. And then you could also be making, in addition to that $100 million AAA game, you could be making another like $40 million AAA game or something like that. Uh, your return on investment is still a lot higher if you combine those into one $140 million triple-A game, if you can take some risk out of it and make it appeal to all people and then be even bigger, you'll that's going to do better for you. So that's that's what they're doing. Is that sort of creatively depressing for, let's say, someone like you, where if, if you're, let's say you're a part of a $140 million triple-A game and you know, yeah, so that you know that you can't take all these big swings because a big swing means a big risk for the publisher so you have to you know quote unquote play it safe is that tough for someone like you who of course does this because it's creatively fulfilling it's it's a trade-off yes it's tough um and yes it, it creates i've i've often compared working on a game like that to to being in the ocean where if you try to if you try to fight the waves like you're just going to get tired and drown and be frustrated and you can't blame the waves for going where they want to go. But if you can ride the wave and have it go where you want to go and you want to go where it goes, it can really be powerful. So yeah, uh, if you think you're going to really innovate your control mechanisms or have some crazy reinvention about how games work or do whatever on a giant AAA franchise like that, that's probably not, you're probably going to be frustrated. But there is something great about entertaining that many people yeah. and working with a community that large and all that kind of stuff. So you, you kind of, you got to take the good with the bad on that one. Do you get sick of talking about Metascores? Because I used to review games for IGN and GameSpot. And I, of course, enjoyed it a lot, but didn't want my opinions on games to affect the business of people who make them. There's this weird back of my brain thing where people are like oh bonuses are associated with scores i'm like i don't want it to be responsible for that in any way and of course i'm not going to ask you to detail that stuff in different projects you've worked on but do you kind of just get sick of worrying about that i've watched metascores very closely uh before because they would have direct uh influence on my mortgage payment that's so that's crazy but like, do you did you just get sick of that? Like, is is that? I mean, of course, you talk about just you can't always fight against this when you're on a AAA project. You got to go with the flow sometimes. But are Metascores something that bother you that you have to think about that? It's evolved. It's interesting to see it evolve. It's it's just a it's a data point. I mean, of course, like I do, but I don't. I mean, like I think I, it, anyone can see that what drives critical taste is not necessarily what drives. Uh, sales is not necessarily what drives other sorts of things. That doesn't mean they're wrong or bad. 
Uh, it just is what it is. And, uh, you know, so those times when I've had, um, you know, when they've tied uh, bonuses or any of that kind of stuff to critical reception, it wasn't the only thing. Uh, they also would tie it to sales and being done on time. It was part of a pillar of various things. It can be a little bit, I think, uh, everybody who is part of a their sort of group of the gaming audience or gamers tends to way overestimate how much their perspective represents the broader perspective. So mm -hmm. I think people who are writing, uh, you know, reviews and that kind of stuff, I think probably overestimate how much their opinion is shared by the broader gaming public. And for instance, game reviewers, I feel like tend to way overvalue innovation because of course they do. Uh, Tend to t think of the kind of person who becomes a game reviewer. They are probably passionate about games as an art form and gaming and all that kind of stuff. And they love to see the medium pushed forward. They love to see innovation. They love to see new things. And also they're playing a ton of games all the time. Yeah. And value is something to them, but it's sort of abstract compared to the guy who buys three games a year and wants to know that he's getting something he likes and finds innovation Cool, but also risky. Those are just different people, and neither of them are wrong. So you got to kind of know, like, oh, hey, just because something has a high Metacritic doesn't doesn't mean that it's perfect. It might mean that it's just sort of great in this particular way that critics like. And it doesn't mean that something with a low Metacritic that entertains people is is bad. So I don't know. I can I can be sort of political about it. Uh, I don't demonize it one way or the other. I wish it was a little more transparent. And Lord knows it's hard to work on something for three or four years and have it sort of distilled into a number Yeah. Uh, that may or may, you know, when it's already been distilled into a number in, in one, in an article, and then those numbers get aggregated in some weird way. And boy, some of the, some of the constituent, uh, you know, groups, that are then factored in you're, you're like what is this place why is this being factored into when like you know i don't know time magazine being read by half a million people isn't and this weird website from poland is yep. you know, sometimes you're like i don't know what this is anymore some of the sites that get on metacritic surprised me let's just say i've written for a lot of small sites and then eventually again it was GameSpot and ign and i have definitely seen some i was just talking about this with a friend i've seen some sites on metacritic where it's like that is just like a hair above the amateur scene and i don't think that should be here like I, I do think it should be maybe a greater screening process for if we're going to put so much importance on metacritic we should also put a lot of importance on who is actually shown on metacritic if that's the game we're playing and like that has to be it's it's a very weird type of system going back to dead space really quickly um when you are making a game like that which is of course wildly different from star wars do you have to get into a certain stranger, darker headspace and mind space to create the art for something that is intended to unsettle people, where you're trying to mess with people, not just visually, but psychologically. Is that something where they talk about, hey, if you're playing the Joker for Batman, you got to get weird for a bit. Do you have to get weird for a bit when you're doing art for a horror game? Well, I would say one thing that's really different in your analogy there is that it's not like I'm making this game by myself. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I would say when you're talking about the art of, of Dead Space, I'm a relatively minor contributor with my own hands. 
it's it's my job to sort of help help set evolve and drive the vision and make sure it all feels like you know to sort of keep looking at the forest while everybody makes the trees mm-hmm. uh so i want to be clear and, and give credit where it's due to all the amazing artists that that worked on dead space uh yeah, we had like some pretty gnarly reference folders. <laughs> Couldn't even imagine. And what we really tried to do a lot was to get away from the surface level level tropes of horror. Not that you don't end up coming back to them, but to think about things at a deeper level. What are the moments in our own lives that gave us the emotional feelings that we were trying to bring about in the audience? And how could we abstract and bring those into the game um, in various ways. So that's where I spent most of my effort in terms of headspace was trying to think about like, oh, okay, what are the, you know, the the ideas of like, especially in a sci-fi, like aliens are not rare. Blood is not rare. Like these things aren't necessarily horror, but talking about intimacy, what are the things that feel more horror? Stuff happening to your teeth, that's yep. way more horror than just like, you know, shooting and stuff like that. So we would think we would go like, okay, how do we get that feeling of that? Or uh, loneliness or sensory things changing in terms of like one moment that was influential was uh, uh, actually from the gym at EA was I would, after, you know, the gym was, it was crowded after lunch and everybody was in line for the showers at the same time. And, you know, one shower being on in terms of sound sounds about the same as 10 showers being on. <laughs> so the showers are all full. I get into one of them and I have a shower and then I turn mine off and it's quiet because I was towards the end of the rush and everybody had wrapped up and they would already left. But I didn't realize that everybody else had left and turned my, until I turned my own shower off. And I was deeply unsettled in that moment because something I took for granted, which is I'm showering in a bank of all these other people that are also in their showers, turned out to be false. And it had to and it was all that story all happened in my head through audio. And those are the kind of ideas that we tried to mine. Oh, okay. well, how can that be a gameplay sequence? How can we use like stimulus existing and then not existing and you didn't realize it? to sort of make people unsettled. And what is this dance we can do with our audience where we think we know what they expect, but then we're going to flip those expectations. Um, That was the kind of, that was really fun uh, work. I didn't actually find that it was dark work though. You sort of, you're, you're unable to experience it for yourself. I've never been scared by dead space because you know, I know every trick. I know the whole thing. And so it, 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 it didn't actually feel like, a horror experience working on it. It just felt like a craftsman experience. And then we had to be really humble about testing and letting people play it and sort of believe what they told us and, and understand whether we were getting it, getting it right or not. I assume pacing is something you constantly have to be thinking about with a game like dead space too, because you want to give people breathers so you're not just in their face the entire game so at that point it's less being scared it's more being exhausted by what's going around so you need these moments to to decompress and also you did say you have to flip the script a bit don't just give them what they expect but with the horror game is there also value in maybe after subverting expectations to finally actually give people what they expect to give them the satisfaction whether it be a jump scare or whether it just be 
a big terrifying moment. That was you're totally right. That was a big lesson actually for for Dead Space Two, where Dead Space One was effective, but a lot of the feedback that we got afterwards was that it was it was kind of one note. Uh, you know, it was just like scary all the time, and without the sort of valleys to go with your peaks, it it people can get sort of overstressed and fatigued, and and you know we would get feedback and even where it would um, affect sales because people we in addition to you know uh, asking people hey so you bought Dead Space what did you think of it we we researched people who didn't buy it. And the number one reason why people didn't buy it is because it was scary. Yeah. And uh, because they were like, man, sometimes I want to relax and have fun. And your game just seems like work. <laughs> uh, for Dead Space 2, we really tried to add some variety to the pacing and sort of cleanse the palate. And um, to tease things out more and, and, and be a little more unpredictable for exactly the reason that you're talking about. Which is even more fun. If you can get to a point where... You know, you get into, you think that I think that you think that I think that you think <laughs> this is going to happen. You start princess briding it with yeah, the poison exactly. at that Yeah, point. it gets sort of princess bride where it's like, oh, is it coming? No, it's not coming. Oh, is it this? No, it's not. And that you've built up this relationship long enough. Uh, that's some, some of my favorite things I've ever, you know, been a part of on a team have been creating and subverting and then delivering on player expectations like that. How did you go from being an art director to a creative director, a creative lead in, in future projects? Because I never really know, you know, who in the company is the one who gets pushed up to do something like that as the person who's working on the the art, the sound, the, which whatever department that is. What was kind of the process of getting that? I think Battlefield Hardline was the first game that I saw on your resume where you were the creative director. Uh, it kind of grew organically if i'm honest what happened so i was art director on dead space one and while i was technically art director on dead space two and clearly that was like the the core of my contribution what happened in between is that a lot of people left in between dead space one uh and two to go and they 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 formed the core of what became sledgehammer games and and worked on the the call of duty franchise from there on and so a lot of new people came on for Dead Space 2 who were very talented and motivated and, and awesome. And, and I'm so glad that they joined us. But they hadn't worked on Dead Space 1. And there was only a core of us that, that had. And so what I found myself doing there was answering a lot of questions about how the world worked and what the Dead Space game was about. Not just what it looked like, but what it was about. And simultaneously... Man, that art team was good. They didn't really need me to to teach them anything about like how the game art in terms of execution. Man, they were they were rolling. So uh I found that the art direction on Dead Space 2 while there was a lot to to do there was pretty light lifting if, I, if I'm honest. I was mostly cheering from the sidelines and helping everybody uh sort of align and everything else. And I found myself between those different factors, contributing beyond just how the game looked, but into like what things happen and, you know, some of the some of the story and some of the scenes and all that kind of stuff. And I found myself after Dead Space 2 came out, maybe even more proud of the stuff that was my idea than just how the game looked. Yeah. So after Dead Space 2, 
I went to the bosses and I said, hey, you know, I would love to, over time here, transition to being creative director and, and being in charge of not just how the game looks, but the story and the vibe and the sound and the, and the whole the whole deal. So the deal we made is that I would um, help transition on Dead Space 3 and I would sort of nurture the pre-production for how that game looked and, and do all that kind of stuff, but onboard a, a, a new art director for, for most of that. And then halfway through Dead Space 3, as it moved into real production, I went and uh, started a new IP, started a new game as creative director. And uh, that game got about eh, maybe about nine months in before there was sort of a big organizational shift. And they and they said, hey, uh, can you stop that and, and make a Battlefield game instead? And that's sort of how that went. Uh, being an off-numbered Battlefield game, this was right around the time where I mean, Battlefield was a major franchise. Just about every year, new one coming out. It's one of the bigger things you had worked on. When people think of maybe the off-numbered Battlefield games, Bad Company comes up, and it has this very specific sense of humor. You're you're falling in love with these characters, but still carries that very similar Battlefield feel. For Hardline, what was your main goal with it going in, knowing that okay, this is not a numbered one, so we have to have a hook? What was your plan for that? Well, our idea now, Battlefield was not an annual franchise at the time. It was going to become one, and this is before the Star Wars deal and everything like that, but it, it wasn't every year. And we started on that just after, like, uh, a few months after Battlefield 3 came out. So we knew that Battlefield 4 was going to come out from DICE and that we would be one year later. Also... We had never used Frostbite before. We hadn't made a first-person shooter. We hadn't, you know, like, it felt like trying to do a modern military follow-up of the best people in the world at doing it when we don't have the same bench of experience one year later seemed like asking for trouble. Yeah, that seems like an impossible ask. Right. So we knew that we needed to make a move somehow. Also, we weren't, you know, we, we wanted it to have some, some value, some sort of do something interesting. What we did have was good experience with story, good experience with single player. And while DICE had made some strong efforts towards single player, it wasn't where they came from or what they really loved at that point. So they were interested in us sort of innovating in single player and doing more there. And... uh and so there you go. So our idea was knowing that we were going to be doing good to really just um, learn how to make one of these games and, and get it done and do it to a, in the incredibly high standards that DICE has. Our, our, our idea was to leverage what we knew, which was storytelling, tone, and, and single player to try to bring that to the Battlefield franchise and have it just feel different in its music and vibe and visuals and everything so it didn't just feel like a an off year worse version of battlefield 4 like we just called it battlefield 5 i don't i don't know but it was yeah. born from the beginning to be a battlefield game um so that was our intent from the beginning you know it's hard to say what that means in in retrospect i think uh in the end i think it didn't totally succeed either direction in terms of I don't think it was Battlefield enough for core Battlefield fans 
or different enough for to really feel like something different. And it kind of it kind of ended up in a less loved middle place. Also, the other big thing about that game is that we had just never made one of those before. So we tried a lot of different stuff. And there's about 25% of that game that is really good, like really cooking. And uh, and then a big middle part that is pretty good and I think turned out uh, definitely worthwhile. And like 25% that just doesn't work. And we just didn't know. We hadn't done it before. And so, like, if we were going to make a Battlefield Hardline 2, which obviously isn't going to happen because Visceral doesn't exist anymore, I think we could crush it. But uh, because we were trying so many things for the first time, uh, you know, it's sort of spotty. But that that was our idea from the top was, okay, art play is going to be great single-player story, innovate on single-player, make it less linear, change the feeling and the tone and the vibe and stuff like that. And that's where we can bring innovation to this franchise that that with what we know how to do and not just do an okay job at what dice really knows how to do and was that the most difficult project you'd ever work on just being a creative director for the first time and working on a series you weren't exactly fully you know comfortable with yet and just all the things going against you do you kind of look at that as that was the hardest thing i've done yo oh, yeah no question and no but let me be clear i loved battlefield i yeah. played every one of them they're fantastic. And I was very excited at the opportunity. So it wasn't like, oh, man, they made me do this or, or anything like that. It's just the scale of it. Uh, it happened during a time when the business was really changing in terms of, uh, you know, like the scale of AAA games just got so big over the course of that and all that sorts of things. And there was just so much learning going on, which is just difficult anyway. So it the challenges there weren't there at the beginning from like a oh man i don't know if i want to do this perspective it was just going to be really challenging no matter how you cut it yeah and this might be a weird question but when did you start making battlefield hardline what year was that uh the first talks about it and when we were laying down the ideas were early 2012 um i think it was a a paste magazine review by austin walker which was i think 2015 where this police brutality became a major topic during that time which of course that's not something your team could predict when you're first creating this game in your head and pitching it to people and by 2013 it's not an issue by 2014 but then 2015 when it's more in the news that's something that came up during reviews was that something that internally you were struggling with knowing that this is a game about you know police and it's a contentious topic right now was that kind of a a difficult time for you yeah, it was really difficult. Um, we thought it was going to be the other way because um, when when we started, we thought that violence against police, because you kind of play, play both sides, right? We thought mm. violence against police was going to be controversial. There had recently been some stuff with like Medal of Honor and things where, you know, do you play as the terrorists or play you know, against U.S. soldiers and all that kind of business? And uh, that was going to be an issue. And yeah, and then over the course of, of 2014, it just became, and then stuff started to happen that was just sort of, let me stop for a second. Yeah. Because I feel like it's important that when you're talking about real social issues like this and the, the, uh, the importance of the things that are involved, uh, how it impacts a game developer on the West Coast uh, who has had nothing but a life of privilege should not be considered by anyone. 
Absolutely. And, uh, that's, I think, important to note that the facts that these, the, the problems that these events caused in my life are trivial, non-existent, and irrelevant compared yep. to the issues being discussed. But what happened is it started to happen on the day. So the, um, the, some of those events that were notable, uh, the Michael Brown incident in New York, uh, the Ferguson events outside of St. Louis happened on the day of like our Gamescom demo on the day of our VGA performance. I remember and it this. just felt like we were snake bit and yeah. there was no way that we, our work wasn't going to echo these images that people were seeing. Now, our idea from the beginning was not to create a realistic cops and robbers situation. I mean, our one line I used to say in interviews around the time is that our characters also spawn parachutes and jump off of skyscrapers. This is not a realistic uh, exercise. And we were trying to create like a, a cop TV show more in the line of like a Starsky and Hutch or a, or a Justified or something like that. This is the world that these people exist in, not the, the, the real world. But there's no question it was in the air. Yeah. Um, and what, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, stuff happens. We also had a, a mission in there that touched on sort of um, ultra right wing secessionist type of issues that are not too dissimilar from what Far Cry 5 is doing now. And that wasn't too big a deal. We got kind of a bump for it, but that wasn't too big a deal. And then in the meantime, it's all blown up since. I felt like what the good news is. I felt like we could defend our work and like there's a there's a, a small sequence in in Battlefield Hardline where uh, the you're sneaking out of a of a sort of place that you've been imprisoned by these right wing secessionist racist types and they use some pretty racist language where they go, uh, you know, because uh, you're a wanted man and one guy's like. You know, quarter million dollars for a Mexican. I didn't know they got that expensive. And he's yeah. making, you know, like, and people called us out on it. And I was happy to have that conversation because I felt like our work was justified there because for two reasons. Number one, characters are allowed to say things that that creators don't believe. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. Uh, you write things, you create things, and like that's the character speaking, not necessarily you. But on top of that, you're Cuban in the game. And you know it, and we treat those we treat the characters' Cuban heritage as uh, as part of who they are, and uh, not coincidental and important, but also not entirely defining. I think those characters are are um, good and nuanced and and well done. And the the enemy in that case, by lumping all uh, people of of a certain skin color or presumed heritage together under the umbrella of Mexican is betraying their racism. And uh, I think it's a perfectly valid sequence in the game. And, I'll, and I, I was happy to talk about it because I felt like we had a good place to come from. So, uh, you know, it's that's that's sort of how it is. Yeah, and it's good that you are happy to talk about it and be honest and be open and, like you said, defend it or maybe not if it wasn't right at the moment. But uh, no, I totally agree. And last major thing here uh after hardline and before you moved on to crystal dynamics you had a role with the avengers game and tomb raider was there ever this moment where you considered leaving AAA to try something smaller to try something that 
maybe you could be more creatively free in and didn't have this burden of if this fails, the studio closes. Well, here's the thing. It's not like that doesn't happen at an indie level. <laughs> True. There, I, there is really great work happening at both levels. And yeah, when you talk about innovation and, and bold choices, you could you could argue that at, a, at an indie level or whatever you want to call sort of super indies that are that are showing up, um, really inspiring stuff. And I'd be happy to be a part of that in the future. Who, who knows? I always just want to be learning and trying things. So we'll see what the what the future holds. You're starting to see, I think, that happening more and more as giant AAA games are kind of all turning into the same game to some respect. You're starting to see some real, even just this year and last year, some real seismic stuff happening. Like, would you call PUBG not a AAA game? I don't know. I don't know what I would call that at that point. I, well, like, I don't know of anything that sells 40 million copies is not AAA, <laughs> but maybe not by traditional definitions. I I, I don't really know. So, uh, yes, I've I've thought about it. Uh, friends have, have done it, and I'd, I'd be happy to be a part. We'll, we'll see what... what the future holds all right perfect uh ian where can people find you on social media and i know you can't talk too much about the your outpost games role but is there anything you want to plug oh i'm happy for people to check out uh what we're doing at, at, at outpost uh we're 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 working on a thing called sos it's pretty experimental and evolving but that's on that's on steam early access right now um for me personally you can find me on twitter uh my handle is is monkey pants with an underscore under there that's a whole that's a whole Great other story about how that handle happened. Or um, ianmillam.com uh, is another place that, that you can find my stuff. And just around, I'll be on the Reddits sometime. Uh, the, I, I still enjoy going back to the subreddits of various things I've made and, and engaging with people. So I'm around. Perfect. Uh, Ian, thanks so much for doing this and being so honest about all the different products you've worked on. Uh, when this podcast comes out, it'll be... I'm moving to LA soon. When it comes out, I will be the second week into working um, out of Sony Santa Monica with uh, a, a team from uh, called Tangent Games, and we're doing something cool. And it's been fun. I've talked to you. I've talked to Lauren Lanning. I've talked to Mike Laidlaw. I've talked to a lot of really great developers to kind of. Yes, it's like hopefully the conversation is interesting to everyone, but there is the selfish aspect of I want to absorb as much as I can as I go from being a writer to to doing production on a game so i appreciate you taking the time i think the work you've done is really cool and i really can't wait to see uh what you're doing at outpost games that's very exciting man congratulations thank you so much really appreciate it uh so hopefully i get to see you at e3 you going to e3 i don't know if i am this year we'll see uh you know e3 tends to be a big reunion for for game devs outside of the thing and if you're and it can be such a giant thing if you i'm not pre- promoting or releasing anything this year so i might take this year off and and we'll see well hopefully i'll see you around at one of these conferences now that i'm going to be on the west coast so yeah again appreciate it and thanks everyone for listening hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099